0: God's sole intent for every single one of us is that we would know Him and that we would enjoy Him forever. His desire is not that we would be attendees to a religion or religious system or a church, or that we wouldn't ascribe to a doctrine or to a dogma, but He wants us to know Him. As Christians, it's what we call relationship. We've all used that phrase that we don't believe in a religion, we believe in a relationship. And that's the desire of God. He wants to have a relationship with us. He wants us to know him uh, even as he knows us. That's what God wants. Now, every relationship, whether it's a human relationship or whether it concerns our relationship with God, has two things that make it a relationship. Number one is that there has to be a connection. Something has to happen to initiate that relationship. My wife and I spent uh, a couple of days, the, the, actually over the weekend, down in the city, uh, just the two of us, which is a rare and blessed occasion when we get to do that. And as we rode on the train and, and walked in Times Square and then rode on the subways and just millions and millions of people, there was, there was life all around us, but there was no relationship because there was no connection. We were just faces. They were strangers to us, we were strangers to them. So without a connection, there's no relationship. But then after there's a connection, then there is a covenant. And oftentimes, a covenant that exists in a relationship is an unspoken thing. But there's a set of expectations, there's groundwork, there's mostly unspoken things that dictate the terms of what that relationship is. And so in a marriage, there is a set of vows and there's a set of expectations that cause that relationship to function and keep it together. If there's a business relationship, the terms are much different, but nevertheless there are terms in that relationship. In a friendship, there are terms of it and often undefined, you know, and all the rest. But And we we might not define those things, but we certainly experience them and we always experience then when those terms are violated or when they're changed, we see those relationships destabilize and fall apart. If a business relationship goes sour or is no longer, then that relationship dies because the terms of it have gone. If in a marriage, the the covenant is broken, or in some way, uh, someone walks away from what the, the, the vows are in that marriage, then the relationship breaks down. There's a contract that keeps the relationship together and keeps it strong. And so too, as God desires to have a relationship with us, there's a connection and then there's a covenant. Now, the writer of Hebrews, his entire intent in writing this book down for us and writing this letter and recording it is that we would be strong in our relationship with God. There was a group of first century Jewish Christians that were knowing God, but that were tempted to turn away from who they knew God to be in Christ and to go back into the Mosaic system that they had been then called out of. Now, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, God had a relationship with his people. There was a connection that was established between the people and God at the hands of the mediator or the priest. First it was Moses who brought the people the law of God and the word of God. And then it was Aaron and his descendants who would become the high priest and then the priests that were under him. And the purpose of the priest was to be the connection, the mediator, the one who stands between lost man and a holy God and joins the two together. And so there was a connection through the priesthood. And then there was also a covenant. It was the covenant of the law, the commandments that were delivered to the people through Moses. And the terms of the covenant were that if the people were to obey the laws of God, then God would walk with them and be with them. But God said that the terms of the covenant were perfection. He that does these things shall live in them implying that there had to be a consistency on the part of man. And thus there was a relationship between man and God in the Old Testament, but it was a faulty relationship. Because the priesthood was imperfect, and because the covenant was too strong for man to adhere to. Man wasn't able to. And so in the New Covenant, God established a different relationship with His people. The connection between God and man would no longer be through the old covenant priesthood, but rather it would be in the person of his son, whom he sent in the world to be the priest, the priest, singular, that would re-link man fallen with holy God. And so Jesus became the connection, and the covenant became that which was established through his blood, his ministry, his death, and then His resurrection being the full payment and completion of the law that was broken to put away the sin that separated us from God and thus bringing us into a relationship with God that's no longer set upon the terms of my responsibility to keep the law, but in God's ability and in His work of doing it for me through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the relationship that God establishes with the New Testament believer is a superior relationship to that which was experienced by the Old Testament Jew because it's got a stronger connection and it's based upon a better and more lasting covenant. Now, chapters 6 and 7 that we looked at last week and in the previous weeks all deal with how Jesus is the superior priest or the superior connection in this relationship that we have with God. As we get into chapters 8 and 9, he's going to get into the superiority of the covenant or the contract or the terms now that dictate this relationship that we have with God. And so as we move now into chapter 8, we transition from the priesthood of Christ to the covenant over which he is priest. And so we begin in chapter 8, verse 1. The writer Begins, and he says, now of the things which we have spoken, that is that which has brought us up as far as we've come. This is the sum or the bottom line that we have such a high priest that is in the person of Christ who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So summing up or recapping everything that he said thus far concerning the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is a superior priest in that he outranks any priest that ever could be in the Old Testament system. Whether it was Moses himself in his day who spoke to God face to face, or whether it was Aaron and his descendants who were the high priests, or any of the other Levites that were under them, Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God himself. And so you can't go any higher than that in terms of establishing a connection with God. We're linked with his son, and therefore we're linked with God. He's set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty. And then it describes his ministry, what he does in verse 2. It says, a minister, minister means servant, so a servant of the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary is the place where man meets with God. When the Bible talks about a sanctuary, that's what it's speaking of. And so he's a servant of the meeting place and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Now, we're going to hear a lot about the tabernacle. We're going to hear that word a lot in tonight's Bible study. And the tabernacle, when we read about it or or, or hear of it, it speaks of the Old Testament church, or the Old Testament tent, and that's what tabernacle means, a tent, where the people would come prior to the days when the temple was built, And they would meet with God. And there was a tabernacle on earth. And what the writer here is telling us is that the tabernacle that Jesus presides over is one that is heavenly. The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Not the one that Moses pitched, but rather the one that exists in heaven. And then he goes on to say, For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. The ministry of the Old Testament priests was to bring the lambs and the rams and the bulls and the offerings to God. And they would offer those on behalf of the people. And so he says that just as they did bring offerings and sacrifices, so also Jesus as our high priest also has to have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not or would not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. It would be redundant. It would be baseless for Jesus to have been a priest while he was on earth, because there already were priests on earth in the days of Jesus. The Levites, it says that they, those Old Testament priests, verse five, serve unto the example And shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for see, saith he, quoting now from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, see that you make all things according to the pattern that was shown unto you. In the Mount. Now, this is extremely interesting, and where it gets uh, uh um, very, very exciting for us as we look at what's written here in the book of Hebrews. What we're being told here is that when Moses constructed the tabernacle that was given to him by the direction of God in the Old Testament, that what what Moses was doing is he was building a model or a life-size diorama of something that he had seen in a vision that existed in heaven. The text is Exodus chapter 25, and the first time God says it is in the 8th and the ninth verses. When God is telling Moses to construct this tent, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so you shall make it. So God is saying, listen, I'm about to show you something, Moses, that exists where I am in heaven, and I want you to construct something on earth according to the pattern that you see in it. At the end of the chapter, after giving him the instructions for just a few of the articles for that tabernacle, he says in verse 40, and it's the verse that's quoted in Hebrews, He says, and look to it, see to it, that you make them after their pattern which was shown unto you in the mountain. And so what the writer is telling us here is that all of the articles of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, including the tabernacle building itself, that all of that was a model of something that exists in heaven, and that what is on earth and is seen is very simply just an example or a shadow of what the real thing is and what it represents in heaven. And so as the Levites were the priests that ministered in the earthly tabernacle, Jesus is the minister who sat in heaven, who is the high priest forever, ordered over that eternal sanctuary that exists where he is. So if there was a tabernacle and a covenant, In the Old Testament, then there also must be a tabernacle and a covenant in the New Testament. And so he tells us in verse six, he says, but now in contrast to what was then, has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator. That's another word for priest. You could interchange those words. He's the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. So we've already established in the last two and a half chapters that Jesus is a superior priest than the priests that were presiding over the old covenant system. He was greater. He was superior to them. Now he's going to get into the superiority of the covenant over which Jesus is a priest. So there was an old covenant We call it the law, or the law of Moses, or the Ten Commandments, or the Levitical system. All of those things encompass what makes the old covenant what it was. And again, it was based upon man's ability to conform to the behaviors that were set forth by God. And righteousness and a right standing before God was contingent upon man's ability to keep those laws and, and, and conform to that behavior. That was the old covenant system. And what he's telling us here is that Jesus is the mediator, not only of a better tabernacle, but of a better testament or a better covenant, a whole new covenant that's not related to the old. He explains in verse seven, he says, for if that first covenant, the law, had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. In other words, if the first covenant was sufficient for the salvation of man, then there would be no need for a new covenant at all. Well, for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of a Jewish ear or a Jewish mind that's reading these things or thinking about these things. They might be saying, well, what do you mean by a second covenant? There is no second covenant. There's only one, the one that God gave to Moses. And unless you can show me by the scriptures that there's to be a new covenant, then I'm not going to even give ear to what you're saying because we don't turn our backs on Moses. So that's exactly what the author does. He reaches now into the Old Testament book of Jeremiah the prophet and he pulls forth a prophecy spoken by the Lord through Jeremiah that the days would come that there would be a New Testament. And the logic that the author is bringing forth is that, listen, if God says that there's going to be a new covenant, then that must mean that there's a problem with the first covenant, because God is perfect. And if God is perfect and he established a covenant, then there's no need for a new covenant. So, what does he say? He quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And it's a verbatim quote, all the way from verse 8 down uh, to the end of verse um 12. So a long quote here from Jeremiah. And and I want you to notice the things. There's seven things in this uh, little passage of scripture right here that that would be important for the Hebrew uh, audience to hear concerning the, the terms of this new covenant that would come. He says in verse eight, he says, for finding fault with them, he saith. Behold, the days come. And if you're taking notes and you just want to underline something in your Bible, that would be the first thing that you would underline right there, is those words, the days come. And the reason why that's important is because it points to the fact that this covenant, this new covenant, is something that is yet future. It doesn't exist in the present. It's something that will come later on. So the first thing is that the days will come saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant or new terms of relationship with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Then in verse nine, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. That's the second thing that you'll wanna highlight or underline um, in terms of the importance of this passage. That it is not according to the covenant that was made with their fathers. And here's what that means. That word according, You hear the word cord or cordance in there? It means that it is not in harmony with the covenant that was made at first. It is a completely separate covenant. It isn't an addendum or an amendment to the previous covenant. It is something that is completely irrelated to that first covenant. It is totally separate and new. It's not reformation It's totally different than that which was. It is not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. Now, you would say, well, why do we need a new covenant? He answers that question next. He says, because they continued not in my covenant. That's the third thing that you'll wanna underline. I just underline those words, because they continued not. In other words, man was unable to meet the terms of the old covenant contract. And that was the reason why there needed to be a new covenant or a new contract, because it was impossible for anyone ever to keep the law of God and to measure up to his standards. And so he says, they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts. That's the fourth thing that you want to make a note of concerning uh, the, the, the importance of this covenant. Is That is that this covenant is an internal covenant that works from the inside out whereas the Old Covenant was a covenant that worked from the outside in. The Old Covenant, I would read the law, I would mentally ascribe to an understanding of what it said, then in my will I would make an agreement with myself that I wanted to live that way, and then I would try with all my effort to live according to what that law said, because I know in my mind that that's the right thing to do. It was an external covenant. It worked from the outside in. I conformed my behavior to what the law required, hoping that my heart would catch up and change someday so that those things became second nature to me. It was a covenant that worked from the outside in. But God is saying that the new covenant will be on a completely different plane and that it will work from the inside out. He says, I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts. Meaning that under the terms of this new relationship that we have with God, the work of making me what I'm supposed to be starts in the deepest place and then it works its way outward in my life. And that's the way everything always works in all of life, isn't it? How do you determine, or what determines, rather, if a sunflower is a sunflower? It's what's programmed in its very roots. It doesn't come from the petals. You can't paint the petals and cut and and make the shape and turn it into a sunflower. You would be conforming it in its appearance, but the roots would still be feeding a sunflower or or whatever else it was. You know, It always comes from the inside out. Whatever we are on the inside is always going to be manifested eventually on the outside. That's always the way it works. And so as long as there's something that's external that I'm trying to make internal, that's never going to change what I am on the inside because I can't change what's on the inside. It takes a work of something greater starting deep within to transform me from the inside and make me something that I could never make myself. And that's what the New Covenant or the New Testament promises, that God says that those that enter into relationship with me through this glorious New Covenant, The work will begin on the inside and it will work its way out. That's why it talks about being born again because it grows from a seed and it becomes something later on. It's an internal covenant. And then he says, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. That's the fifth thing that you want to highlight concerning this covenant. And that is that God himself promises to be the priest or the mediator of this covenant. That's what a priest is. A priest is someone who stands before people on behalf of God and stands before God on behalf of people. It was said of Moses that you will be to them as God and, and 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 then you will stand before me for them. That's what a priest does. And what God is saying here, by saying that I will be to them a God and they will be to me a people, is God is saying, I have removed the middleman of a priest and I myself have become the priest or the mediator of this new covenant. And then in verse 11, he says, and they... The they would be all of those that are in this covenant. It says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least all the way to the greatest. Now, this is not speaking of all people, all citizens of the world. It's speaking of those that are in covenant with him. And everyone that's a part of this covenant that are in relationship with God through it We have the Holy Spirit. God gives to us His Spirit inside our hearts at the moment we give our lives to Him. And when we begin this relationship with God, there's an intimacy that is birthed wherein we become familiar with Him. And we don't need someone else to dictate the terms of this relationship to us. We have the right and the privilege to go to God ourselves and to hear from God ourselves and let Him direct us according to His will for our lives. Now, that's going to look like something. You know, it's going to look the same kind of in all of us, you know, because it's the same God living in all of us. But we no longer need a priest telling us what to do. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes to the church and he says, you don't need that any man should teach you. For the anointing that you've received from him gives to you an unction so that we know the things that God has given to us or the things that God is teaching us. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that the natural man, that is the unsaved man, that he receives not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. But we who have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ, and therefore the things that are laid out for us are ours. We understand them. That's why we understand the Bible. It's why if if by some miracle I'm making sense to you tonight, it's because the Holy Spirit is, 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 is harmonizing what's going on in you with what's being spoken of by me. Because he's inside of us. And so he says I, uh, um, that they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I, I know I've shared the story with you before, but I remember when I first started off in, in my Christian life. Um, get, getting to know the Lord, and um, there were some things that that the people were trying to pull me into cultish things early in my walk. And I remember being on the phone with uh, Georgia, who at that time was just Georgia, now she's my wife, and uh, and I was telling her some of the things that that these people were saying to me. And um, and as I shared them, she she in her very gentle and, and humble way, she just said over the phone, she goes, Nick, you know, I, I'm listening to what you're saying right now, and she said, I know God. And that's not God, what these people are telling you. And, and I remember, I, I was in my college dorm room, I was sitting on the edge of my bed, there was no one else in the room, and I took the phone and went like this, I went, You know God? I mean, talk about name dropping, right? Like, <laughs> but I remember something happened at that time, and I realized that that's what this is all about. It's not about learning things. It's not about having my doctrine correct. Do I know Him? Is He real in my life? That's what I wanted. That's what I want today. It's what we should want. It's what He's given to us. It's what the new covenant provides that the old covenant could never give to us. The reality of a relationship with the living God. And then number seven concerning the prominence or importance of this covenant is that it's a covenant that's based upon mercy, not a covenant that's based upon reward. He says, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. will I remember no more. The old covenant was completely about reward based upon my works. The new covenant is completely based upon mercy because of His work and my works are completely removed from the equation. It's a covenant based on mercy. Now, what the author wants us to see in verse 13, he says, In that he saith a new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. And that's the most important thing in terms of what these Hebrew Christians needed to know is that these two covenants do not coexist at the same time. When the new covenant came, the old covenant perished. And therefore, it is impossible to relate to God according to the old covenant, number one. And furthermore, it is impossible to relate to God in a blending of the two covenants. Well, I trust Christ for my salvation, but I'm also going to lean upon my ability to keep the law of Moses. You can't do that. There's a discord between the two covenants, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. And the whole issue with these Hebrew Christians is that they were going back to or blending with the old rather than holding fast to the new. And so he says, that which is old, decays and is ready to vanish away. Now in chapter 9, he contrasts the two covenants. He says in verse 1, he says, For then verily, that is in the Old Testament, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick, that is the, the menorah, the, seven, um, the seven-candled the seven lampstand, and then also the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And then after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer or the altar of incense, the golden bowl that had incense uh, constantly burning within it. And also the Ark of the Covenant, which was that golden box that God told Moses to, to make that was overlaid with gold, uh, wherein was the golden pot that had the manna, that is, when uh, the children of Israel were in the wilderness, and every day there was manna or bread on the ground. Moses was instructed, take a jarful of that manna, seal it up, and put it inside the ark, inside that box as a memorial and a testimony that I provided for my people. And also in that box was Aaron's rod that budded when there was rebellion amongst the people. And they said, well, why does Aaron get to have the authority of being the high priest? And the way that God settled it before them all is he said, well, bring, the, bring you know a man from every tribe whom the people would appoint and, and bring their staffs, their staves, into my house and leave them there overnight and I'll show you whom I've chosen. And in the morning after all 12 of those staffs were leaning there, Aaron's staff, this dead stick piece of wood, had grown branches and blossomed flowers on it. There was fruit that came out of something that was dead because of the call of God. And God said, "See, I've chosen Aaron to be my high priest." And then God said, "Put it into the ark." So, so the ark, the, the 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 rod that budded was in there, and then also the tables of the covenant, that is the finger written um, tables that had the law of God on it. They were in the box as well, and then over it over the lid of that Ark of the Covenant were the cherubims of glory, those golden angels that whose wings overstretched over the mercy seat, shadowing the mercy seat. And then he says this, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So here's what's going on here. He's painting a picture of what it was like in the Old Testament. And for those of you that have never seen a diagram or a drawing of the Old Testament uh, house of worship or that tabernacle, what it looked like was this is that as you would approach, if you were walking towards it, the first thing that you would see out in front of the doors was this huge brazen altar. And that's where the sacrifices or the offerings would be made as they were brought by the people. They would be handed off to the priest, and then the priest would offer those sacrifices. And in the offering of those sacrifices, the worshiper who brought it would then be made cleansed or able to approach unto God. Then after the brazen altar, there was this little bird bath looking thing that was called the laver. And in that, the priests would wash their hands before they would go in then into the tabernacle. So all of that was in the outside, in the courtyard, the altar and then the laver. But then you would go into this rectangular compound called the tabernacle. And as you would enter in through the first veil or curtain, you would come into a place that was called the Sanctuary. Or the inner court. That was the first room in the tabernacle. And in there, that's where you would have the lampstand. That seven, seven-candled 7 menorah that was in there. And then also the table of the showbread. Those things would be there. And then the altar of incense was actually in that sanctuary. But then behind the altar of incense, you would have this Thick veil, this thick curtain, and there would be another room that was behind it. And that room was called the Holy of Holies. And in that room, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And what that represented was the very presence and glory of God. It was concealed in that room and the people were separated from it by two veils. The veil that separated the holiest from the sanctuary and the veil that separated the sanctuary from the outer court. And so you had this tabernacle that was constructed, and the priests were allowed to go into the first room, the sanctuary, and they were always in there. They would be offering, they would be replacing the showbread. There were things happening that were in there. The incense would be being changed out and all the rest. But that inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, No one was allowed to go in there except one man, one day a year. And that was the high priest himself. He was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies on the day of atonement. And after going through quite a purification ritual himself, he would go in, he would bring incense from the golden bowl in with him. He would bring blood from a perfectly specified sacrifice. He would sprinkle it upon the ark and upon the vessels that were there. He would commune with God for a short time, depending on what God might want to reveal to him while he was in there. And then he would come out and he wouldn't be allowed to go back in there again for an entire year while all the people on the outside waited for him to emerge and to pronounce forgiveness on the people that their sins had been put away. Atonement had been made for another year. And so that's what took place in that earthly tabernacle. But understand that in all of that, all of that was just a model. It was a shadow of the real thing that's taking place in heaven. Now, notice what he goes on to say in verse six. He says, now, when these things, the earthly tabernacle were or were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. And so it was the high priest that was allowed to go in and do this. So what's the point that the Hebrew writer is making and bringing all this up? Notice what it is in verse 8. He says, the Holy Ghost, this signifying. In other words, what God wanted you to come away from an experience of that encounter with or what God wants you to understand by perceiving what all took place throughout that Old Testament worship system was this, this is what God wants you to realize, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, the conclusion that God wanted his people to come to while they observed this whole ceremony taking place year after year is that the way into the presence of God was not accessible to the common person. Now, I want you for one minute to put yourselves in the shoes of a Jewish man or woman who's there on the Day of Atonement standing outside of the tabernacle and watching this whole ceremony take place. And so you watch the priests, and they go in, they do that all year. They go in and out of that first veil, and they do the thing. But you can't go in there, because you're not a Levite. You don't have the right to go in there. You can see the altar and the laver, but you can't go in the sanctuary. That's for the priests. And then on the Day of Atonement, you see the high priest. And he's there, and he's got his crown and the mitre that says holiness unto the Lord. It's got the breastplate and the erm and the thumum and the, the royal robes that God instructed that the priest would wear. And this man who has been sanctified and washed and cleansed and prepared and made holy, he goes in and he disappears beyond that verse veil. And you wait in silence while he's in there. And then you realize, you know, but right about now, he's probably passing through and he is in the holiest place that you can be in on planet Earth right now as he goes into the Holy of Holies. And the conclusion that God wanted the thinking person to come to that was observing that whole thing is that if all of these priests are not allowed to go into that room and that man himself who is declared to be the holiest man in the entire nation that he isn't even allowed to go into that room, except it be once a year, and that's a risky thing. If he's got any sin, he's going to drop dead in there. That if he's not even allowed to go in there, then I haven't got a chance of ever getting into the presence of God. Not just on earth, but even more so in heaven. I don't have a chance. And for the reader of the book of Hebrews in the first century or even here tonight, we realize that all of those things were just the model or the diorama of what's really existing in heaven. So think about this for just a minute. If no man is allowed to even go into the diorama, then what chance has any person got of going into the real thing? There's none. And that was the message that the Holy Ghost wanted the people to come away from that experience with. Realizing that there is not a way into the Holy Presence of God that has been made manifest yet. Now that can do one of two things. It can either bring you into despair, realizing that you don't have a chance and you just throw your, you know, whatever's left of the lamb over your shoulders and say, I'm going home. There's no, there's no hope in any of this. Or what God intended is that you realize there's going to be another way that God is going to make because he didn't make us to be estranged from him. So the Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as yet the first tabernacle was standing which he says was a figure or a shadow for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the sacrifice perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Even the high priest who went into the Holy of Holies, when he came out from that experience, he knew that he was still a sinner and that even having the privilege to experience that moment that he wasn't even allowed to go back into it for an entire year. And his conscience was still defiled by his own sinfulness, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinance imposed on them until the time of reformation. So that's the old covenant in all of its systems. It was inferior in that it did not allow man into the presence of God. But now the new covenant, verse 11, He says, but Christ being come now a high priest of good things to come by a greater. There's that word. We've seen it over and over and over throughout the book of Hebrews, a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and of calves, but rather by his own blood, the blood of the spotless lamb of God, the blood of Jesus Christ By his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, here's an amazing thing. When it talks about the holy place, it's talking about, of course, the holy place in heaven, having entered into that sanctuary. But do you realize when you read John's gospel and you read about the burial of Christ and you read about his resurrection, there's an incredible picture that's painted there. Because when Peter and and the two women went into the tomb that first Easter morning and Jesus was resurrected, what they saw when they went in there is they saw the grave clothes folded neatly in a place and then they saw an angel at the head of the place where the body was and they saw an angel at the foot of the place where the body was, but Jesus was gone. And I doubt they realized it then, but it was a perfect picture of what the high priest would see when he would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go in and he would see the mercy seat. And he would see the two cherubims, one on the right and one on the left. And the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat that was there. It's a perfect picture of what Jesus accomplished when he went into the grave. He brought the blood of perfection into the Holy of Holies. But it wasn't just on earth. He brought it into heaven and thus the effectiveness of that sacrifice was greater than the effectiveness of the blood and bulls and goats, which could never take away sin. And the permanence of that sacrifice was superior to the earthly sacrifice in that he did it once and he did it forever. Never has to do it again. It says eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, And it did. There was a ceremonial cleansing that took place when they offered those animals. Then how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, sinless, dying, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Do you see the effectiveness of the new covenant? The Old Covenant could cover your sins for a moment, but it could never cleanse your conscience. Whereas the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit that comes in at the New Covenant, He can set a man's conscience at ease so that he can rest his head and realize, my sins have been forgiven. I'm right with God. I have peace with God because of what Jesus did for me. And it's no longer contingent upon my works or conditioned upon my obedience in order to earn favor with God. He has set my conscience at rest. Jesus said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, carrying the guilt and the burden of your sin. And he said that I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And what the blood of Christ can do to ease a man's conscience, the sacrificial system of the old covenant never could. Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator or the high priest of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So this covenant is superior to the Old Covenant in that not only is it more effective, but it is permanent. It is once and for all. For where a testament is, he says, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. Now, he he draws upon now the illustration of a last will and testament. And we all know what that is. You know, someone uh, has has uh, lived a lifetime of accumulating assets and goods, and then they die. And they have a will or a testament, and in their will they leave everything that they had attained in their life to those that now are remaining after them. That's what a, a will or a testament does. And so what the author is saying here concerning this testament, the New Testament, he says in verse 17, for a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Whereupon, even the first covenant or testament was dedicated without blood or was, was not dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, He took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop. And he sprinkled both the book and all the people saying, this is the blood of the Testament, which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. Speaking of an event in Exodus 24, where where Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it and he declared that this is the blood of the Testament, the Old Testament, which God has enjoined to you. And then in verse 22, and almost all things are by the law purged or cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood is no remission of sin. Now that's an important truth for us to understand. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is what? That's right. The wages of sin is death. You realize that that is a law that exists in the universe that is as true as gravity itself. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the penalty or the reward of iniquity is death. It's very simple, right? I mean, there's not very many ways that you can explain that, in other words, to try to clarify it. Meaning, in applicatory terms, that if I sin, then what is my reward? Death. That's right. And in order for that sin to be put away, something has to die. But it isn't just a something out of something. It has to be a something that's worthy of taking that penalty of death. See, If I die for my sin, then that is righteous, because I'm the one that committed the sins. But if you die for my sin, it doesn't count. Do you know why? Because you're a sinner, and you have to die for your own sin. And so your death isn't accredited to my account for my good, it's accredited to yours, but it does you no good, because now you're dead, because you're a sinner. So in order for sin to be put away, there has to be an innocent substitute. Innocent being the key word. It has to be something that's sinless that will die for me. And it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats and calves could put away my sin because they're not equivalent to me. They haven't sinned, but they don't have a flesh. They don't have the opportunity to sin in the way that I do. It's not an equivalent sacrifice. So in order for my sin to be put away, I have to find someone who is sinless who would be willing to take that penalty on my behalf. And so I begin to search the whole world. And I go to the heights and the depths, from sea to shining sea and all over the lands, and I find him. I find one righteous man in all the world. And now I've got the insurmountable task of convincing him to trade places with me and to pay my penalty of death so that I can have his right to life because he hasn't sinned. What are the chances, if I find that person, that he's going to be willing to take my place in death and give me his get-out-of-hell-free card? Not likely, right? But do you know that's exactly what Jesus Christ did? He came into this world as a man. He was God, clothed in human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived every day of his 33 years on this planet in sinless perfection, without spot before God. He never sinned in his mind. He never sinned with his hands. He never sinned in anything that he did. And yet on the night he was betrayed, he took a cup in his hand and he offered it to his disciples and he said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood, which is being shed for the remission of sins. And he said, take it. Take it. Do you realize what he was giving away? He was giving away his ticket to heaven. He was giving away the only thing that he could bring into the presence of God that would afford him acceptance before the Father. And he said, take it. And then just a few hours later, he was in a garden alone. And he began to be in agony and he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And he said to his father while he began to be in agony, he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And three times he prayed that prayer. Let me ask you, what cup was it that he was not wanting to drink, but willing to drink if there was no other way? It was yours and mine. It was all of the sin that we had filled up in our life of separation from God, it was every lie every misdeed, every sorcery, every adultery, every murderous thought, every raging hand, every bit of selfishness, every bit of greed, every bit of what we are by nature was in that cup. And every sin that has ever or will ever be committed on this earth was in the contents of that cup. And Jesus Christ, because there was no other way for man to be saved, and because God wanted a relationship with man, He took that cup willingly, and He drank it to the dregs of it, it says in the prophets. And He went to the cross, and the wrath of God that must be meted out on sin in order for justice to be done was placed upon Jesus Christ on that cross. And He endured every bit of the wrath that you and I deserve the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, innocent blood, there is no remission of sin. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, that is the inferior sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. When Jesus rose from the dead because he was actually sinless, and when Jesus ascended to the Father and sat down at his right hand, he brought us there with him so that now we are in the Holy of Holies in heaven. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he, Jesus, often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, But after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. So what does all of this mean in summing it down to the bottom line concerning where you and I stand today in terms of this new covenant relationship that we have with God? Do you know what it means? It means we have access. It means that we don't stand outside of a tabernacle watching someone that's holier than we are go into a place that we can never have hope of going into ourself. But when Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, the Bible tells us that the veil that was in the temple, the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that that veil was torn in half from top to bottom, from heaven to earth. The Holy Ghost, this signifying, that the way into the holiest of all is now made manifest through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that you and I, who have made covenant with him through his son Jesus, that we now have access into the presence of God freely, all the time, not once a year, but when Jesus did it once forever, he opened the way for us to be in the presence of God always, That's the privilege that you and I have. Not only right now today, but we can follow him right into heaven itself. Not the pattern of things, but the reality of things. So let me ask you in closing, and the musicians can come as we we close the service tonight. Do you act upon the privilege that you have in being a beneficiary of this new covenant? How much time do you spend in the presence of God now that you have access to him? The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only so, but it says that we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, Concerning the access that we have to God, he says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. So let me ask you, are you one that hangs out in the outer, outer, outer court? Yeah, you know, I know the cross is there, the, the altar, the laver, I'm clean. Maybe you go into the sanctuary and you spend time at the lampstand or at the table of showbread. I, I, yeah, I ask God, fill me with your spirit. Yeah, I look at His word. But do you know that you have access? Do you know that you can go in to the very Holy of Holies and that you can sit in the quietness of your heart and you can commune with God and you can allow the aroma and the shekinah and the glory of his person to fill your life and you can talk with him and listen to him there and be filled with God? That's the entitlement of every believer, to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. We no longer need the mediator of a priest. We can go to God through Christ. It's an incredible covenant so far superior. And to leave that covenant to go to anything else is to leave the greater thing for the inferior thing. Every time. May God show us what it is that we have in Christ. Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. And we ask You, Lord, that You would take the truth of these things and write them in our hearts in a way that we would understand the glory of this grace. So Lord, as we sing this song, we pray that you just fill our hearts with a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, and a sense of worship. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did in giving us your Son upon the cross. And we ask that you would fill us now as we stand in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.